Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Mihaela Barit and you're listening to Sorry Partner. Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with Romanian champion Mihaila Balinc about what drew her to bridge, why she became an international tournament director and what keeps her fascinated by the game. Plus, she shares her top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. How are you, Jocelyn? I'm fine, Catherine. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. I was playing online yesterday and something happened which caused me to giggle and I thought it might amuse you ever so slightly also. Okay. Okay. So you know how we love to play our mini maxi and mega splinters? Love the splinters. But, of course, it means that you can't jump shift anymore. No, you cannot. That's right. You cannot weak jump shift. You cannot strong jump shift. That's right. You can only splinter. (laughs) And I have a partner who, while trying very hard to accommodate my preferences, is also very attached to jump shifts. And so he has reluctantly agreed to forego the jump shift in order to be able to play my splinters. But we find ourselves having private chats between rounds online (laughs) (laughs) about this said topic. And yesterday we were chatting back and forth and and then he wrote something about, you know, boom, boom. And I was thinking, what's he talking about? And then I looked at the chat and realized that instead of writing jump shifts, I had left out the F and had written, profanity alert, jump shit. And it was very, very funny (laughs) because I suppose that is how I feel about them. 
And so, <laughs> yes, I can see this is going to enter our um, private bridge lexicon. I'm sure. And I will never think of jump shifts quite the same again. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, too, because I have a bit of a history with the jump shift. When I moved to Australia a number of years ago, I was paired up at a club with, you know, yet another random because that's what happens. And I played with this woman for a number of months. And, you know, I was just playing my game, oblivious as ever, had no idea. I mean, we talked about certain systems, but, you know, I was still so inexperienced. I just had no idea. And so, you know, I just didn't know what questions I should have even asked. Anyway, (laughs) our partnership came to an abrupt end one day in the parking lot after a game and she had this complete hissy fit with me about jump shifts. She'd never heard of a jump shift. She was just apoplectic about the way I kept making these these crazy bids and she had no idea what they meant. La, 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 la. And that was the end of it, which is, you know, let's face it, probably a good thing, but this was all over the jump shift. The jump shit. Yeah, the jump shit because I was jumping yeah. all over the place. She had no idea what I was doing. Well, she definitely had something had an impact on you because I remember when we played together many years later, you didn't like all the jumping. <laughs> like, stop all that jumping. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? And then you taught me about the splinters, the mini, the maxi, the mega. <laughs> And yes, and I love them. And I've since actually converted a partner or two to do the same. Well, there we are. A complicated but interesting bridge journey. (laughs) Yes. And now it's time for Club Quell. Club in the spotlight. Hi, my name is Amy Muscaplatt from Santa Monica, California in the United States. My bridge club is the Pasadena Bridge Club all the way across town in the San Gabriel Valley. It's a brand spanking new club on the second floor of a building that overlooks the San Gabriel Mountains. And on a clear day, you see beautiful view of the mountains. Some days you can even see some snow on the mountains. Something else special about the club is that the director, Morris Jones, and his wife, Jane Houston Jones, toured around the whole world for many years before they started the club. And they got ideas from some of the best bridge clubs, and they've tried to incorporate them in this new club. They have three or four games a week, plus office hours with drop-in lessons or classes. They also have specific classes from beginner to more advanced. And they have a couple sessions of social bridge, and they have experts that come in for special classes and seminars. And the best thing I love about the club is that only kind, friendly play is tolerated, which is a lovely thing in the bridge world. It's been a great way to start learning bridge in person. I began learning bridge in the pandemic online, and it was actually with this teacher. And he is now the director of the bridge club. So come full circle. So come on down. Email us if you'd like to quell about your club. Club in the spotlight. I'm quelling. Three letters today, Jocelyn. And conveniently, the first one extends the theme of assumptions we make at the table. 
Ah. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, bring it on. Okay. This is from Bill. I was playing with someone for the first time. They're right there. <laughs> we know. We're in for something. Okay. Our club has a guaranteed partner program. Oh, that's very nice. But often there is little time to review conventions, which, Jocelyn, we all know, you would loathe. <laughs> I would. <laughs> I opened one heart and partner responded, to no Trump. Great. Jacoby, to no Trump. I bid my five club side suit at the four level and he responded four diamonds. Wonderful. I was looking for a diamond control, so I bid four no Trump to ask for key cards. My partner passed me. My opponents were as confused as I was and inquired about the bidding. It turns out my partner didn't play Jacoby Tuno Trump. (laughs) His Tuno Trump bid showed a balanced 11 to 12, and he thought my four club bid was Gerber and that I'd closed out at Forno Trump after he showed no aces. We only went down one. My first clue should have been that he didn't alert Jacoby Tuno Trump but I was too busy preoccupied planning my slam. <laughs> May all your finesses be on side and your mouse clicks be steady. Bill. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Well, I, I can't tell, Bill, how many times people do not alert to no Trump, you know, or the follow-ups. People alert Jacoby. Yes, alert your bids, people. Stop making Jocelyn and I have to ask you what you're talking about. <laughs> Which I can't help myself. Or making Bill play in for no Trump. Right. (laughs) Spare us the indignities. Alert your bit. Our next letters are actually from the same person. We have two from Jim, and they're both bridge good luck stories. The first one is about seven no Trumps double and making. I managed to bid a hand up to seven spades, somehow missing the ace of spades. It must have been on my left because the person announced with great authority, double. The bid went around to my partner who very smoothly said, seven no trump, thus changing the position of the opening lead. The bid went back to the doubler who said, I, I, I double twice. However, the doubler's partner failed to get the memo and did not lead a spade. Seven no trump doubled twice made seven. (laughs) Very nice. Awesome. Yes. Awesome, Jim. (laughs) Lovely. And then the other letter from Jim is about the best insufficient bid ever. (laughs) This one is from back in the day when he was in college and an inexperienced player. He says, one Sunday we decided to venture away from the comforts of the campus duplicate bridge club and we put together a team for a Swiss event in a sectional tournament. This was my first ever sectional and team event, and I was very nervous. Get your pen ready, Jocelyn. It's ready. Okay. In the first round, on one of the first boards, the following auction took place. I opened one diamond. Left-hand opponent bid two diamonds. My partner bid three diamonds. Right-hand opponent bid four diamonds. (laughs) I had absolutely no idea what any of those bids meant. And I was too embarrassed to ask. So what Jim doesn't say here is I think he must have been a little rattled in the moment because he says, I went into deep thought and decided that between what I held and given that partner seemed to have something, I could make three no Trump. So that's what I bid. (laughs) And unbelievably, it was passed around. 
I somehow muddled my way through and made it, at the conclusion of which right-hand opponent immediately began to loudly berate his partner for poor defence. There was a nice swing on this board. We won the round and I had my first fraction of a tournament master point. Those folks were not nice, but we did not call the director. Jim. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, once that bid's accepted, it's too late, right? Yeah. 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 I would say so. I've learned that the hard way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, it's better to be lucky sometimes than good. (laughs) Indeed. So if you have any fun stories about bridge malaprop lingo, like jump shit, (laughs) or stories about bids that were not alerted, or perhaps some good luck stories, please send them to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com. You can find all of our contact details on our website at sorrypartner.com, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with Mihaila Barlant. Unfortunately, we had a little trouble with the audio in this interview, so you might notice a faint echo. We apologise and hope it's not too distracting. Romanian champion Mihaila Balint learned to play bridge at university. She has represented Romania in the mixed teams, winning bronze in the 2019 World Championships, placing fifth in the 2022 World Championships, and winning a silver medal at the 2022 European Teams Championships. She is also an international tournament director. We began by asking if she'd had any interesting hands lately. I'm going to choose actually a hand that was not played by me, but by my husband who I happen to keep it. It made me think, so that's what made me say this is the hand we chose. He was playing Reynold Trump. It was a cold contract, but he was playing match points. We are taught that in match points, uh, 50-50 is the threshold for starting to take chances, which is very different than what we do in days. And my husband was in a way better position than a 50-50. It was actually a double finesse that he could stay. So he was missing the king and queen. Of course, he wanted to go for that. And uh, when both of them misbehaved, the contract was down. Now, what happened is that she was playing with the client who was not happy. Even the rookie tried to explain that uh, it was a good chance to make over tricks and it worth it in match points. Why was this hand interesting to me? Because it started this conversation. First of all, it was interesting that the client was not happy thinking that it was a 75% chance to make the contract and it was still not good enough for him. And it was not an exotic contract, okay? So it was not the contract that you make and you're already beating the seal. First thing I thought, wow, he thought it's 75% and it was not good enough for him. In reality, the moment my husband finished for the second time, it was no longer 75% because in bridge you have to update the probabilities as you play and so many players don't do it. Even many good players don't do it. I'm not talking about very good players, but good players don't do it. When he took the first finesse and got to the queen, already he lost two of the three winning chances. No king-queen on side, no 
just win on side. These situations were gone. And the only winning one was win off side and king on side. This was the only good situation, that, that, which makes it sound like now it's a 50-50, but it's not. I don't want to get technical. It's a restricted choice situation, which makes it a 66% still win by finishing again, which is very good. That's the first point that I found interesting, that you really have to update your probabilities as you play. Then I also asked him, what about a real 50-50 in a good field? The field knows that this is match points and it's a death threshold. What do you think most players will do, I asked him. Do you think most players will try to say, okay, I just want to make my contract? Or most players will say, I want to go for it. Because it could land either way. And it's funny because both of us answered differently and we were pretty confident. I thought that most players would just think, okay, I will not risk my contract just for a 50-50. Yeah. And he thought, no, good bridge players are gamblers. They like to go for glory. They like to say, <laughs> I had the guts and I won. <laughs> so it's a nice question maybe to ask it. You have a platform to make a poll to see what most people think about this. Would you say that pretty much sorts most bridge players, that they're either gamblers or they like to play it safe? Oh, it sorts people. <laughs> Not necessarily bridge players. There are people who like to take chances and there are people who are risk averse. I saw it also in people who just start playing bridge. Some are just really afraid of taking finances because what if they lose? Others are like taking all the finances they can even if they are not necessary. Do you think that partnerships are often divided between people who are more adventurous and those who are risk averse or do you think it doesn't quite line up like that? You mean that uh, it's better to have one of each in a partnership? Well, do you think that's the case? No, because... I don't find my partnerships to be that way. But yes, I understand what you mean. It's important that partners uh, be a fit. Like if one is slow, the other one should be fast to compensate. If one is sensitive, the other one should be extra supportive. And if one is adventurous, the other one should understand when to pull the brakes because if they both go <laughs> too far, it's not going to end up well. So yes, there is this aspect, but it's not about, you don't have to be one of each. You just have to really know what to expect from your partner and be there to balance that. So do you have a regular partner that you play with? Unfortunately, not now. I do have a slightly regular partner, the one I play with in the Romanian national mixed team. But we don't play many tournaments a year. He's a professional player. He has many other engagements. He's also working for a family that organizes bridge holidays. So we don't play that much together. I also don't have that much time these days, so that's okay. <laughs> But I am curious if you were just going back to the conversation that you were having with your husband and you, you felt that more players probably would take the safe choice and your husband thought that they'd be gamblers. In your own partnerships, are you the one who plays it more safe than your partner? No, I think both of us are pretty conservative, but we like the occasional uh, risk. But no, we are the people who overcome on six cards to on the second level almost always. 
we are not uh, taking a lot of risks, but sometimes we do exotic things, <laughs> both of us. <laughs> what would your partner say is one of your strengths at the table? I think I am reliable. You know, I, I would make mistakes, but I am reliable in that I do play for every board, trying to maximize the result on every board. And I don't get affected by how bad or how good things seem to be at the moment. Of course, I make mistakes and I do feel bad and I do feel embarrassed. But I immediately go into, okay, let's not make any more mode. So I don't really spend one second thinking about what happens because to me it's just a risk of making more mistakes. It's very easy for me to do that, to just discard what was in the past and focus on maximizing what is coming. I also think that I play better when it's important. Oh, that's interesting. Why do you think that is? So, well, it's uh, my psychology that when, when it's really important, I remind myself more and that I am fully present and uh, if there's any time to give your best, it's now. I just enter a different zone and I, I am able to, to focus more, which I don't do in every tournament. I was focusing in every tournament when I was younger. Like I would really go to the club tournament and be very, very determined to take every trick. But as time passed by, I switched a lot more to automatic pilot and that's not always good. It's a little bit though about preserving your energy, is that right? Yes, it is, it is. And now I have less. <laughs> <laughs> but if you really wanted to, could you do it? Well, I think I can do it for the duration of a big tournament because they are just at most two weeks. So I think I can do that. And I actually noticed that I can do that. I played the Ukraine Cup. Then I come home and I immediately crash. It's like I really don't feel how tired I am until it's finished. But when it's finished, it's just amazing how tired I am. <laughs> how long does it take you to bounce back? Well, after my first Wuhan Cup, that was, I think, my most intense competition. It really took probably a week for me to feel like a normal person again. I just remember walking down the stairs in my home and really cold and like, I don't know, I might just fall. Oh, gosh. What about like during a competition, you know, you go back to, say, your hotel room in the evening. How do you manage your energy in that way? Do you watch your diet? Do you try to get to bed by 9 o'clock? Or some people are the opposite. They like to sit up late with friends and have a few glasses of wine. What's your style? Well, I definitely don't want to have a few glasses of wine. I find that it really doesn't help me the next day. I will not do that during important competitions. Yeah. But I also don't really go to bed early. I don't do it in general. It will just be hard for me to fall asleep anyway. I would probably go through the hands in my head and end up more tired. I do not like to discuss boards in the middle of a tournament. It's an understatement that I don't want to discuss sports. I really tell everybody, my partner, my teammates, that I would rather not talk about any board unless it's something that we need to discuss to avoid, uh, I don't know, some problems in the next two matches. 
like maybe we had a disagreement that we really want to fix then of course otherwise it's an insecurity and it will stay with me and bother me more but just to discuss like uh, wouldn't it have been better to do this and uh, why did you do that i really don't want to go through this because i know that even if you're the nicest person in the world things can get cheated and it will help no one so when did you learn to play bridge I have some regrets about that. I only learned the bridge during my university years and mainly the second half, which may be a good thing because I graduated. (laughs) (laughs) I only had uh, two years of uh, international junior competitions that I would have really enjoyed to have more. They were still great because it gave me a taste of what it is to play internationally and to represent your country. And that really motivated me to continue. So I'm grateful for the two years. But many times I thought, what player could I have been if I started at eight or nine, like these champions I sometimes hear about. But did you have the option to play earlier? And no, I didn't really know the game existed. You know, I actually knew because I found the green book in our library that said bridge on it, but I didn't really know anything about it. I just asked my father, what is this? And my father said, oh, it's a game, but it's really, really complicated. (laughs) So I just dismissed it, you know. So how did you go from seeing that green book and your father telling you that to actually playing the game? One colleague in university just came to us one day and said, no, let's let's learn bridge. We sometimes had one or two, three hours between classes and we wanted to have something to do. And he didn't know much, you know. (laughs) He had picked up some bridge in a math competition from other people who were playing and that were there with a math competition that lasted like a week. So he didn't know much, but he knew how to finesse (laughs) and he knew the rules. So he taught us. And it was a very romantic time because not of us knew much, but we loved the game. All of us had played cards before, which helps a lot. We made our own system, (laughs) not following any standard, not even knowing that there is a standard to follow. When later we went to the club with our system, some people laughed (laughs) when they heard our merits. (laughs) We also had uh, very cool moments because some of the bridge techniques we actually discovered ourselves, not having someone to teach us. Can you, any, any off the top of your head? Yes, yes, I had. I was so proud of myself. And it's also funny to me to this day that I had to be explained by someone the double finesse after more than one year of playing bridge. But the end play I discovered myself. I was playing a contract and I eliminated just for fear of taking the finesse, you know, <laughs> and finding out if I make it or not. So I made this elimination without planning to make an elimination. And I finally find myself in this uh, situation where I had only trance and ace queen third on three small. So I start with small and this one plays small. And in that moment, for the first time, I thought, okay, if I play small now, everything is good. I don't have to play the queen. Because I started with the intention of playing the queen, you know, taking the finesse. I was really a beginner. And I just looked this time to his and said, small, I said, that moment. Like, I just realized, okay, I will bait the tricks now. My partner did that. And he's like, small? My partner said, you mean the queen? Because it's like the smallest from the ace and queen. 
No, no, I don't know. I think this one. So he played small, he's very confused, probably thinking that I forgot what I played from my hand. Then the opponent started to laugh and said, yes, it was a good thing to do. <laughs> he actually held the key, which made me extra proud. <laughs> <laughs> that must have felt great. Yes, yes, it was very nice. So of that group of people that you started playing with at university, were you clearly the star of the group? Not in the beginning, no. Only two of us are still playing. The other one, not so much. So did you have a sense that you were good at the game fairly early on? I wouldn't say that. I mean, I wasn't bad at it, but I felt like I was just as good as my friends, you know? In the beginning, I did not play bridge because I was good at it. I played bridge because it was fun. Later, I realized I could be good at this and that that makes it extra fun. <laughs> because I really love, I love winning and I love having like an achievements resume. So when I started to win something, it helped. And now for a short break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And we're back. So how did you go from winning at that social level and then maybe at a club level to being recognized as a tournament level player? I actually met some people that belonged in the bridge world and that explained serious bridge to me. I was always a good student. I mean, in school, I was a good student. And every time a teacher believed in me and gave me the resources, I worked extra hard to make them proud and perform well. And I did the same in brief because I met the right people and they believed in me and I had the, at any moment in my life the right mentor for that moment. And when I say mentor, I don't mean people to talk to. I actually found people who wanted to play with me. And this is much, much better. I was never the put a book in my hand and let me study person. I always wanted to be with someone. And I know many people don't find someone to teach them like this. And I did. So I'm not, I'm not as lucky as the Americans that have superstars everywhere. Mm. 
and they can listen to what they discuss and so on. But I was still very lucky to find very good partners with knowledge, with skill, with principles, because I really like my bridge organized. I like to have rules. I like to have principles. And uh, when I encounter a new situation, I will just go back to the principles and figure out what to do or what my partner thinks we should do in this situation. So was it one of these mentors who was able to introduce you to tournament level bridge? My first mentor was somebody my own age, but who was playing for like eight years, not like me. And he later became my boyfriend, which didn't go well in the end. But bridge-wise, it was an extremely successful uh, partnership. And uh, we had some success in junior level. We won junior pairs in Romania. There are only junior pairs. We don't have teams because we are a very small federation with not so many members. When I represented Romania, playing with this person for the first time, that really introduced me to another level of play. And I enjoyed it so much and I focused so well. It was so quiet. I was in a European championship. I was used to club tournaments where in our club it's really loud. So I found myself in the European Championships. It was amazing. It was this wonderful atmosphere. It was so quiet that I could actually hear myself singing. And I was so focused and I liked it so much. And I thought, okay, in the beginning, I was afraid. I was a beginner. Then I said, okay, we can win some matches. And it's a lot of fun. And we get to discuss afterwards. And I feel like I'm learning in these weeks. Like I'm making huge progress from one day to the next. It was intoxicating. <laughs> Just being around that level of competition and that yes. being in the company of people having this level of conversation. Yes, and but and later on it was a mix that helped me be noticed. Every partner that entered my life, let's say, was mainly because they were looking for a mixed partner. And then they saw that I had potential and invested in me and I was more than happy to, to make them proud. Even though you prefer to learn actually playing and doing, were there any books that you did read or that have been influential in your bridge journey that you continue to think about or possibly recommend to developing players? Probably not. My first partner gave me to read Partnership Bidding at Bridge, which at the time it influenced me, but it's not what I do now, and I don't apply the principles from that book anymore. But it was interesting, and it set some ground rules for our partnership. And I, I enjoyed the read. It was really explaining some things. I don't know if they explained it correctly, but it brought some logic to my mind. Lately, I focus more on defense because I love to defend, and I also think that's where most mistakes are made. I did read quite uh, some number of books when I was a beginner. Now, not so much. I prefer to go for quiz-like books, maybe before an important competition to train my brain. I started several times killing defense at bridge, which I really loved, but for type constraints, I never really finished. And I always started from the beginning because I forget. <laughs> but it's a book that I, I find really interesting and uh, as I don't really have a very regular partnership, so I don't have very strong partnership agreements in defense, I find it nice that these books don't focus on partnership agreement. 
sometimes it's really frustrating because they tell you, okay, you need this, W place, this partner place, this, you have no idea what it means. <laughs> what partner place? Because the book just doesn't seem to care to tell you. So you really have to focus on other information. You have to discard the possible meaning of the signal from your mind and think, okay, what are my chances here? What do I know from the bidding? What scenario I see to defeat this contract that makes sense? You learn to not be lazy. Like many times when you understand the signals, you give too much importance to the signals. The partner can only inform you about their hands. But we take it many times as an imperative signal, not as an informative signal. And we just lazily follow and play whatever partner has said to play. While these books teach you to think and bring also all the other information and then choose what you think is best in your defense. And I like that very much because I really think defense is what people don't focus enough on. Given how much you enjoy defending, how do you discuss defense with your partners? Are there any key principles that are really important to you about defense? Well, I would like to discuss it in detail, but uh, we kind of default to our signaling agreements and then to signal what matters, you know, in a certain situation where we understand that now attitude doesn't matter, for example, to figure it out ourselves if it's scout that matters or suit preference that matters and switch to that. But it's a little, you know, we, we didn't get to many, many specific situations to have it set in stone and be sure that partner will also think this is what's best right now. I would really love to do that with the partner, but it needs hours and hours of discussions, I think, and also to play of many force to encounter more and more situations. But it's... Of course, important to know the basics, which we always do, like not just what we need and what we signal, but also what we tend to do in the middle of the board when we will start a new suit and when we will not play the normal card in order not to give tricks and so on. It's really important to trust that your partner understands and that you understand what they play. It makes me really nervous when I play with someone and I'm not sure that partner's card was trying to tell me something. <laughs> like, I find myself in this situation, okay, if, if my partner was trying to tell me something with this card, that I have to play this, but if my partner was not, and I definitely don't have to play this, that makes me really nervous to have to guess. You have trained as an international tournament director, so you've been on the other side of this whole situation making decisions about certain partnership mix-ups and confusions and mistakes. Can you tell us more about what it's like being a tournament director and why you decided to become a tournament director? Some people think that you direct because you can't play, <laughs> but it's not the truth. I actually think it's very important to know how to play when you direct because otherwise you can't really decide everything by polling. Yes, yes, you do poll a lot as a director and you have to understand where the problems are when there is a misinformation, when there is a break in tempo because there might be a break in tempo now that doesn't affect the next bit but the bid 
that comes, I don't know, three rounds of bidding after. You really have to have a good understanding of the game to judge, especially in this situation, not the technical ones. And I was never crazy about directing bids out of turn or extra card, missing cards. <laughs> I always had to refresh my memory about these, but I loved direct the other ones, the judgment cases misinformations, the unauthorized information, and all these things. You follow the letter of the law. You cannot become too subjective. Then you're a bad director. You should always follow the procedure, and there is an established procedure, whether you like it or not. I am a person that likes to follow rules in general, so I think that has made me a good and unapologetic director. Some people were frustrated by the ruling, but I always had my conscience clear. I always knew that maybe the ruling is not fair, you know, like it doesn't really reestablish equity. But I always said what I did was correct. I followed procedure. This is what happened. And I am giving this ruling because we don't live in a perfect world. And all I have to do is apply the law. And I'm sorry if it didn't work out for you. Do you think that the players were more accepting of your rulings because they knew that you also played? No, I think most players didn't know I also played. They didn't see me around that much because I didn't participate in many international competitions. Before they introduced this mixed category in the European world, I was not there. I see. So, so they didn't really know me as a player. Some of them were quite shocked when they, <laughs> they met me as a player and to, and uh, as a player with some results, they, they actually, I had people telling me, I don't know, I didn't know you knew how to play. Many times people were not accepting. And I remember working as a viewgraph operator once in the Champions Cup and just telling people, oh my God, it's so nice. Everybody is so friendly to me. And as a director, I, it's not that they are impolite, but I never seen these Fully friendly faces. They always look a little like I'm the enemy. Why did you decide to become a director? It was pretty random at first. It was my first partner, the one I already talked to you about, that said, look, there is a tournament director's course and we can just go and see how we do. It was in Romania. We did that, but I had no plans of becoming a director. It was more like I wanted to see how I do. And I also wanted to learn a little bit more about the rules in order to know what to do and what not to do and when to call the director when I played. Are there many women directors? No, I actually think that... uh, when I became an international director, not national, because that didn't really change much for me. I, I was not planning to direct, as I said. When I became an international director, I think that being a woman helped me to get immediate calls for tournaments because I think they were trying to make it more balanced. And so, yes, I, I became an international TD in uh, February 2010, and I immediately was called to direct the Europeans in the same year in June. Mm. So in many ways, you're a role model. Have you ever encouraged anyone to become a director? I think I 
encouraged people to study the rules, but not necessarily to become directors. Mm. It was not something I planned to do in the first place. And I was always aware that if I had the choice, I would rather play. <laughs> okay. I directed all these European and world competitions because at the time I did not have the choice of being there as a player, either because I would not be in the open team and there was no mixed team at the time. And we always struggled to make a ladies team in Romania because we are really not many or because of financial reasons when it was an open competition. So that's mainly what made me go as a director. So it allowed you to stay in the milieu even if you weren't able to compete. Yes, and it, it was still great because, you know, I like falling also because you get to ask the best of players and you have a legitimate excuse to enter their minds. You are the third of a director. Oh, so you can really go there and ask them how they think about the board and it can be fascinating. Do you have a favorite tournament that you like to play? I really like high-level bridge. The context of this answer is also that I didn't play many festivals. I played the Romanian. We have the Romanian festival near the Black Sea, which I, of course, played almost every year. And apart from that, I played in Israel because my husband is Israeli. Tel Aviv and in Elat, but not much more than that. Also, because it still requires some money to go places and, and play bridge. It's interesting, though, that you say that because I think it's something people don't talk about that much is the economics of the game and the economic situation that many professionals find themselves in. You know, people are very much dependent on being hired on teams. Exactly. So if you're hired, it's great because you get to play a good level competition and be rewarded for your performance and you don't have to worry about expenses. But if you don't go that route of getting people to notice you and to hire you, then it's a problem to attend all these competitions. So anyway, probably even if I had been in many festivals, I would still choose a high-level tournament. I think my favorite are the European Mixed Teams Championships. I have to choose between the European and the world. I prefer the European because it's uh, round-robin. I don't mind the pressure of knockout. I, I... actually enjoy the pressure of knockouts, but what I do mind is that it's one match and anything can happen. You might play bad and win and you might play well and lose. And if I lose and I don't get to play the full two weeks, I'll be so frustrated for not getting the chance to fight until the end. So that's why I feel better in the Europeans because I know I will just play the whole tournament and have the chance until the very last card to try to win it. (laughs) What is the most unexpected place that you found yourself playing bridge? I played on the beach, but it's not very exotic or um, in the dorms. I played on trains while going places. I remember playing uh, on a train and somebody came with this uh, idea that we play with two decks of cards instead of one. And how it goes is that, for example, you play spades. You can overtake the Ace of Spades with the Ace of Spades because you are playing with two decks. So it was very, maybe maybe not the most unusual of places, but with an unusual twist. <laughs> the balent twist, we'll call it. Yes, yes. I, we like to do weird things with the game on bridge, just, you know, like, like sometimes they make those uh, crazy competitions. 
And we liked to try various things. Once my friends and I met in BBO and made it our job to see who can score the biggest minus. So basically everybody was trying to nose tricks and it was quite difficult. That would do your head in. (laughs) What's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you when you were playing bridge? As a director, I can remember something that didn't happen to me as a player, but it was very cute. I know it's funny, but very cute. I was directing kids' teams, and I was called by this the sweet voice director. So I go there, it just shows me his hand and says, the bidding went fast, 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 and I have this. I was still a little confused. Okay. Then she did not have an opening hand. So he looks at me, can I pass? So I said, oh, you can, you, you might not want to, but you definitely can. And this led to the auction. <laughs> that was very good and, and funny. I thought it was a nice story to say. And to me, as a junior, you know, I liked to try everything. I also had a small window of being a junior. So I really had to rush and you know, try all the things like crazy pre and Sykes, Grosvenors, the wild leads. <laughs> And uh, some people get offended by Sykes, but I liked them at, at the time. Now I don't do them much because I, I'm more afraid and I believe I can win the other way. But once I decided to overcall one spade on a three-card suit, and this is not yet funny because many people do it, but what happened is it was doubled and my partner decided also to steal some space and bid two spades with Honor Dumbleton. So here we were. I bid one with three cars and he gave me a thing with two. And uh, it was uh, extra nice when they ended up in Trinal Trump and the better contract would have been four spades. <laughs> we had a good laugh about it. I mean, me and my partner, the opponents were not very happy. <laughs> No, I bet they weren't. Do you have a favorite convention or gadget that you really love to play? So I do like to play gadgets. I am not one of those people that will say, no, no, keep it very, very simple. But I usually think for every gadget, there is an alternative. So I will not say, oh my God, this is so important. We cannot play this. I'm trying to think also how the other people see me. I, I think what is most noticeable about me is how much I love the non-penalty double. I really love how you can assign whatever meaning you want to the double. It, it basically, for me, it asks for whatever you need in that moment. And I love the flexibility of this call. It's like it can ask you to choose the suits, but it can also show extras. It can also ask you if you have a stopper for Trilotron because there is no room to ask. It can uh, invite when there is no room to invite otherwise. It can tell, and I actually played this convention with my mixed partner, okay, compete once, but not twice. I don't think I said everything. I'm pretty sure we have some others, so I would say I love to assign artificial meanings to the double. You can see that I, I play mainly teams because in match points you might want to have the penalty double more often than that. But in teams I just paint it a feast to double whenever you need something. And apart from that, you know, I also think about uh, favorite convention. Is, does it come up often enough to be my favorite convention? 
because if it comes up once in uh, two tournaments, maybe it's not so important. Or does it bring a good payoff when when it works, you know, when you use it? And for that, I would say I like some slam reaching conventions. I I listened also to some people on your podcast that said about non serious Donald Trump, and yes, I definitely enjoy having that in my arsenal. This is not really replaceable. And also, let's say I open one spade and uh, they overgrow three parts. I like to play here that four clubs is fit with a better hand to leave room and not four hearts like the standard cubit that kind of presses you to decide if you go higher than game or not. These kind of things I like. They're not big gadgets or names of conventions, but they help me reach... I like specific kings. I don't like to answer a number of kings. I think it's important. And I like to, when I ask three kings and I answer, that means I either have this king or the other two. And partner will almost 100% know which case you're in. And it will help a lot. What about conventions that you really don't like to play? I mean, if my partners really want to play something, I'll probably say yes. Is there one, though, that makes your heart sink? <laughs> you think, oh, all right, but you'd really rather not? No, but what I don't like is telling too much about my cards. And I don't mean if I, I like full disclosure of our agreements. Yes, I definitely want full disclosure of agreements, but I don't like our agreements to offer full disclosure of our hands. So I was never a fan of journalist leads, for example. Giving count in the defense, uh, I don't like, unless it's one of those situations where count is important right now, so that I give. But other than that, I feel that these help more the declarer than they have my partner, so I'd rather not. What is the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given or that you can share with our listeners? Okay, it's not something that I really do, but it's something that I aim to do. Somebody once told me that this is their biggest strength and it really inspired me. The idea was to make your partner feel like they are the best version of themselves. I think it's really important. It works with me. If somebody makes me feel like my partnership is a safe space and that they really appreciate me and that they also think how they can help me and also will not gossip about my bad moments, preferably. I will try to be the best version of myself also for my partner. And I think it works for many people. And I think if you try to do that for your partner, it's also, it might be hard, but it's a fake it till you make it kind of thing. <laughs> and Slowly, it will start to remove some of your ego. And really, I think the ego takes a lot of our energy. I hear players saying that they want to play simple systems to save energy. But I don't often hear people saying, okay, I want to save energy, the energy that I waste by thinking how to shift blame. However, or how to justify my unfortunate decisions, because I think that takes a lot of energy. I think that our vanity takes a lot of energy and it also prevents our partnership from focusing on the right things. And because at the end of the day, I want us to try to be better in our performance, not in our image. 
So it's not a very technical advice, but I think it's important. Mihaila, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. Thanks. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. It's been great talking to you too. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Mihaila Balint. Thank you also to our Sorry Partner Posse of listener supporters who make the show possible. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Jade Gray. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or send us a voice message. And please consider supporting the show. Join the Sorry Partner Posse, purchase books through our site, explore the merch store. These links and a link to Club Kvel are in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice or we'll call the director. Until next time, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Mihaila says, make your partner feel as though they are the best version of themselves. That way, they will strive to be the best version of themselves for you. Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.